but you were in a situation and your immediate response was, I'm gonna say that a black man is threatening me. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Chad Hawk with Matt Dowd, and we are Renegade Atlas, charting a new path for your life. Matt, we are continuing the conversation today about how things like race and prejudice and discrimination and oppression and sin and all of those things tie into the world that we're living in right now. And you have a guest you've brought with you today. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and introduce him? Totally. Yeah, I'm really glad to have my friend Mercedes Givens with us today. Um, guy, local KC buddy of mine, who we actually haven't talked for a little while. and um, But it's great to have you on the show, man. Um, would you actually just introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are, what you do. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, Kansas City native. I grew up here in Kansas City. Uh, left for about... 10 years during kind of college years and post-college, and then I've been back in Kansas City since 2010, thanks to a uh, aha moment over Naked McMuffin with Jesus. And so... Uh, <laughs> Jesus goes to McDonald's? That, that's the first that. time I've heard an Egg McMuffin <laughs> yeah. and Jesus together in the same sentence. Yes. And so, uh, so yeah, I've been back in Kansas City for over 10 years, married, have a beautiful family, have a older daughter who's 27 and married... Um, Son-in-law, Taylor. They live down in uh, the Woodlands, Texas area. Oh, cool. And I've got a six-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a little bit over two-year-old little guy. So, and a wonderful wife I've been married to for almost eight years. Awesome. Perfect. Hey, what part of town did you grow up in? Uh, so, I grew up in Midtown, Kansas City. So, right about 31st and Woodland, which would be about yep. 31st and 71 Highway now. Yep, yep. So, that area, I know you don't know any of this history, Matt. Yeah. That area has gone through... Um, some major trials, major, major trials, because back in what, 1970 or whenever it was, when they tore out all the homes right along there, it was nothing for years. They didn't start building it until what, 90 something or other. And it was just desolated. And it became even a, a, a in an area that's already impoverished and having a hard time. It made it even more so because people would throw trash and it was just dumpy and it, what right? Absolutely. Yeah. And all the businesses along there that failed and so that kind of gives you an idea of the part of town you grew up in because Matt wouldn't have a clue on that. <laughs> yes, that's true. I'm yeah. I'm only been here three years, so I'm still kind of learning the lay of the land, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I grew up on the hard streets of Brookside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, mean the mean streets, yeah. Well, so maybe we can start there then, Mercedes. Like, what was your experience growing up, you know, in that part of town under those conditions and whatnot? Yeah, so, you know, my, my mom went to uh, Missouri Public Schools. And even from a young age, that was one of the things that um, she wanted to have different for me was to make sure that I wasn't in the Kansas City, Missouri Public School District. And so mm. um, I was a, a only child in a single parent household. Uh, my mom worked, usually worked a couple of different jobs. Um, there were parts of the time where we lived at my grandmother's house, uh, as I mentioned, right, right at like 31st and Woodland. And then there were um, times that we lived about four or five blocks away. And so from a very young age, uh, Matt, I actually uh, started riding the city bus to school. So at five or wow. six years old, I was riding the city bus to a private school, um, would stay with a relative and after school, after school for a couple hours. So my mom got off work and would okay. come pick me up. So, okay. um, you know, you talk about some different experiences. Imagine being a five or six year old and, and now having a six and a half, almost seven year old. You know, I, I yeah. imagine her getting on a city bus. And, Can you imagine right, that? I, right. imagine, like, I feel <laughs> yeah. like you could be arrested for that these days. It's like you yeah. let your six year old ride a city bus. Back in the day, it was like a normal, normal thing to do. Yeah. Right? yeah, absolutely. You know, and it was, um, mm-hmm. you know, my mom didn't just stick me on a bus and say, go. You know, she rode with me a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was maybe five or six stops from where I got on to where I got off, a, a half yeah. a block walk from the bus stop to my school. And so it was a, um, very easy routine. Yeah. Simple routine. But, um, but yeah, but that was my experience. So, you know, growing up riding the city bus, seeing things that you would see on a city bus, um, you know, did have times where I had random weird encounters where I'd be walking from the bus stop to, to home and just some random stranger would say something weird and I would just take off running as quick as I could. And so, um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, so being growing up in the inner city, I mean, it was, you know, I can think of times where there was a, a corner store that was right up from my grandmother's house and, 
you know, you kind of talk about some of the Kansas City history. I think there may have been some mob involvement and, mm. you know, there was a bomb yeah. in the store one day. And so, you know, those are things I remember growing up in the, the late 80s and into the uh, the early 90s. But but as, as you mentioned, Dr. Ted, yes, very um, impoverished area, you know, lack of resources, um, you know, abandoned buildings, businesses. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, you know, that is um, definitely there had started to be some rebuild. And now as I've visited downtown and, and driven by my grandmother's old house, which is still there, um, you know, it's interesting because things are revitalized. And I, I now see houses six, seven, eight blocks from from where where her house is that are three, four hundred thousand dollar houses. And that, it's like, yeah, what? I know. <laughs> I, yeah. The, the, the changes that are occurring. I mean, they're all po- they're positive changes, but. It's it's transformed that whole corridor there that was dead. Mm. Yeah, re- revitalizing downtown. I mean, the highway was obviously a, a, a big piece to, I think, getting downtown revitalized. And um, it's it's obviously just kind of started to spread from downtown going south. And like I said, I, I'll be interested one day. I, I won't be surprised when there are half a million, million dollar houses, which there are some now. But where there's a lot of that area, mm. that, that that's normal. So um, here's a question for you, and this ties into our topic. Is, a, is much of this coming from, as the, the term that's often used for this is gentrification, or is it um, a revitalization from within, or both? It's a really good question. Um, you know, I think it, it could be some of both. Uh, I think you definitely have folks that are entrepreneurial-minded, that live in that area, that want to see that community thrive, and so... They're starting businesses and and things of that nature. But I also think some of it could be the gentrification side where land and things are really cheap. You've obviously got downtown that's growing, power and lights, mm-hmm. Sprint mm-hmm. Center, mm-hmm. and folks with 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 money and, and resources that want to live in that area, they can go in and buy a piece of land, tear it down, build from scratch, have a four hundred, five hundred thousand dollar house in a really good area and neighborhood. And and so um that, you know, I think long term, obviously, like I said, I, I think you'll that'll almost be the norm in a good part of the city just south of downtown. Um, and yeah, and when folks and again, this topic has come up through leadership programs I've been in where we've talked about, you know, affordable housing in that area. You've got condos going in and, and brand new apartment buildings going in. And again, developers and folks who have the resources to come in and, and build, they're doing it. Mm. But again, it's places that have twelve, fifteen hundred dollars a month rent. And when you're talking about a, a population where, you know, the average income is is maybe right around twenty thousand or maybe even less than that, that's just not affordable for them. And no, so what happens no. and where do they go? So So what what um that ties into the idea of people feeling ostracized, right? Absolutely. Without a doubt. So you you, you, you're no longer living in that community, correct? No, I, I live in Overland Park now. Okay. Yep. Um, what happens, or what happened in the mindset if you're living in that community and you see two blocks down the road there's a five hundred thousand dollar house in your house? You know that if you even own it, if you do own it, it may only sell for fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. You know what does that do to the mindset? I mean, it, I would think, at least for me, if I was in that situation, it would, um, you know, I'd feel very down because it's like, what do I do? If Again, even if somebody comes along and offers me money for my house and maybe even more than what I think it's worth, okay, if I get twenty, twenty-five, or even $30,000, where do I go? Like, I can't Yeah, where buy, do you, Yeah. They <laughs> what, get do you I just, a year and a half of rent <laughs> at the new condo that's being built down the road. Exactly. And so... Um, so, yeah, I mean, you just I, I can see where it would probably become a very desperate situation of what do I do? I don't have means or resources to fix up where I'm at. Even if I sell it, where do I go from here? Do I move to a different part of town? Do I move out of town to somewhere else that's more affordable where maybe I've got family in another city? I mean, you start having to go through all those things and, and you know, you couple that if you've got a family or young kids, you start thinking about uprooting them and just uprooting surroundings. And so it's. Again, I could see it becoming a pretty desperate situation. Yeah, especially when you have family and cultural ties to your to your community right there. And does this help? You know, does it hurt? Does this revitalization help or does it hurt? You know, you you don't live there, but what 
you know, wh- why don't you? You know, if that's your home, my home is in Brookside. I don't live in Brookside anymore, right? Right. Um, but wh- why don't you live there? And what would you? What would cause you to go back if you wanted to? And then how are these events tying into what's going on today? Yeah. So, um, you know, going back to, you know, my mom not wanting me in Kansas City Public Schools. So through about fifth grade, I went to uh, private schools, Father Benedict Justice at Linwood and Bitten, I believe, and mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. um, St. Francis Xavier at uh, 50th or so in Truce. Um, and then after that, sixth grade, we actually moved to Johnson County. So uh, started going to Rustin Elementary School. Shout out to Rustin. Um, mm-hmm. Went to sixth grade there, middle school, um, Antioch Middle School, which is no longer there. It's now the, I think, district office for Shining Mission School District. But um, was there and then uh, ended up graduating from Shiny Mission North High School, so home of the Indians. <laughs> and then uh, subsequently, uh, again, lived in Missouri for a little bit longer. Post that, left, went to California, was there for six years, Denver for three years, came back to Kansas City, um, and then I had just been living on the Kansas side over in Park since then. So you brought something up. I'm going to interrupt the question I asked you. Yeah. <laughs> when you made the, the move, when your mom moved from – uh, you know, the, the very urban part of Kansas City to Johnson County, that's a huge change. Yeah. What happened to you during that change? Um, so a lot of things. <laughs> um, you know, going from being in a school, and I'm sure a lot of kids just in general can relate to this, when you change schools, um, you know, there's obviously that just what comes with being a new kid and having to make new friends and do all that. Um, I feel very blessed and fortunate. I think it's it's been one of my God-given gifts that that I'm easy going and I get along with people. I make friends easily. Uh, I think they used to say, you know, I, I don't meet many strangers type of thing as a kid. Sure, and sure. so, um, so, so moving um, was a little bit of a culture shock, maybe not as much. And I think that was a byproduct of having gone to private school um, because I, I went to school with white kids, with Latinos, with Indians. And so I had already been around kind of some diversity in in um, the private school setting. And so moving to Johnson County, where, again, I had, uh, you know, different nationalities and ethnicities um, in my class, definitely the majority were white, but it, it wasn't it wasn't like my first exposure being around white people or sure. in large numbers, so to speak. But, again, just the things of growing, learning, um, again, it's just a different mindset. Like it was a lot easier to, as an example, just get on my bike and go ride in Kansas, whereas in Missouri, I I pretty much stayed like either at my house or really, really close by because there was always the prospect that if I rode my bike two blocks too far that somebody may take my bike from me and I don't have one. Um, So those were just, you know, those were some of the things that, that I guess I would say I experienced in that transition because, again, you move to a safer area where maybe more parents have more resources. So, their kids have bikes. They're not necessarily trying to take your bike, um, things of that nature. So, again, there was just a lot of that that I think moving to Kansas kind of shifted for me probably mentally more so than, again, the, the culture shock. Um, but at the same time, there were definitely things that um, experienced because even in private school, I would say, Dr. Chad, even though I went to school with a lot of a culturally diverse group of kids, we were still in a neighborhood that was predominantly black. Um, and so, uh, again, I think it just has a different shift of even when you're around folks and they're not necessarily the majority and then move into a situation where folks or there's a culture that is the majority. Um, it is a little bit of difference there. But like I said, I think for me, just having already been in a culturally diverse environment, it wasn't as much of a shock for me or as much of a change for me individually. Gotcha. Yeah, I have a question while we're on this topic of like the neighborhoods and the housing and all that kind of stuff to some degree. I just read something the other day about the redlining and the way I think it was post-World War II. um, And I think it was Detroit, but I can't quite remember. But it was talking about how they would classify these neighborhoods like A, B, C and D. Right. And then so C and D was, you know, there's just these brief description, but it was like, you know, various ethnicities and the condition and all that kind of stuff was part of what they used to describe it. And so they would discourage banks from lending to the C and D level. And then A and B level was, you know, like whatever nicer condition and also predominantly white, you know, as far as ethnicity. And they would prohibit people of 
color or whatever of other backgrounds from moving into the neighborhood. So I, do you, either of you guys know if that type of thing happened here, like in the area that you're talking about, to what extent? I just, like I, like you said, I don't really know the history of Kansas City that well. And how does that tie into everything that we're talking about? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. So when I was in the Centurion's Leadership Program, we actually spent one of our task force days um, around this particular topic. And, and again, it was very interesting because, I mean, when you say that, I'm sure even saying that right now, you're like, how is that even possible? No. Like how... Yeah. How could a bank actually discriminate against people? But again, I think that's why we have yeah. like but the whole government. I mean, it was like from the very top down. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's why we have organizations, you know, like the Consumer for, you know, Protection Bureau, things mm-hmm. like that now, mm-hmm. because you could literally do that back then. And, and it was classified almost, you know, yeah. as you broke it down. And so um, Truce, uh, which is a street that I mentioned earlier, that's kind of been a quote unquote dividing line in our city and, right. and where a lot of the red lining took place. And so you'll hear like east of Troost and east of Prospect. Right. And again, those were areas where kind of some red lining occur where if you were a person of color, you really couldn't get housing kind of west of those lines. And yeah. then yeah. Um, again, over time, east of Truce, east of Prospect has really gone down. There's yeah. There's been abandoned you know businesses, things like that. And again, when you have that type of situation, you have crime, you have poverty, they yeah. they run hand in hand. And I don't, you know, truthfully, I don't even think it's just a color thing. I mean, if you mm. you you take any area and you sure. blight it and there's poverty, there's going to be crime regardless of what, you know, ethnicity is there. But but yes, redlining definitely occurred in Kansas City. Um, yeah. And again, that's, that's why a lot of the development that's going on now kind of south of downtown as you move towards Midtown is such a hot topic because... Um, again, obviously, like I said, you don't have the bank saying, oh, you, you're a person of color. You can't, you know, have a property east or right. west of truth. But again, it's kind of that whole, we're, we're almost getting back to where we were back in the sixties and seventies. And it's like, if we don't yeah. do something about it now, then we're going to see a repeat of history, which is, oh, you can't afford to live here. Well, yeah. we're going to push you further east of truth, further east of prospect. Right. All is going to be revitalized. And then we're, we'll subsequently see the same thing just in a different part of town over time. Right. Which sucks. Um, the that's a pretty succinct way. Yeah, of I mean, let's just like <laughs> you know, we'll bow on that. But well, so the interesting point that article went on to make was that then we were talking about gentrification, you know, and the ability for certain people to come in with means or with money and revitalize, but it has the effect of pushing out other people. But so these people who weren't able to really have housing, they also missed out on this great wealth creation that real estate has had over the last decades. Right. So they weren't even able to participate in it. And so they're still not able to participate now. It seems like it's, it's much more difficult. So I just thought that's that's just an aspect of it I hadn't thought of before. Yeah. Um, you know, it's I mean, it's a like you said, it's an interesting thing. All these, you know, I've had a lot of conversations lately about what's going on. And I, I'm like, it's sadly, it's a multi-layered problem. You know, it's right. not just one of those. And like you said, something as simple as that now has the effect of those people missed out on home ownership yeah. and real estate wealth. And right. so, yeah, it's just, it's a larger systemic problem that's multi-layered and, and just has all these little facets or offshoots that, again, the more you kind of think and dig into it, you're like, oh, what is this issue? What, what is that issue? And wow, I didn't realize this is an impact of mm-hmm. what's going on. And, um, but again, mm-hmm. I, you know, ultimately though, I think at the, the end of the day, it, some of these social issues really come down to poverty. Um, I think you get people educated, you get people making um, yeah. a living wage where they can afford to take care of themselves. I think a good amount of these problems go away. Uh, I used to be sit on a board of an organization that um, the goal is to help people become economically independent and, and self-sufficient. Mm. And we would literally have people who would not take a 50 cent increase, pay increase on their job because it would cut benefits like childcare. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you're mm-hmm. thinking like, okay, here's somebody who's actually working, they're doing good, they're getting promotion, they're getting raise. They have to decline it because a 50 cent increase, which might equate to an extra 30, 40, even say it's an extra hundred bucks a month in, in pay, that that wipes yeah. out $500 yeah. of childcare benefits. And yeah. so it's like, they, they, but again, nobody really wants to be in that state. Like people want to be in a position to take care of themselves. Right. But I think some of the things that have put it, been put in place to quote unquote, help people incentivize the have actually yeah. incentivized the bad behavior. Yeah. And and I, I, we talked about this. I ranted on it for a, a minute last <laughs> week with Mia on, yeah. and it's um, I call it the institutionalization of marginalization. You know, it's where you take 
any group, whatever it is, and we can just easily pick on the black community today, and you create these institutions that support that system so there's a dependency created, and that dependency propagates the bureaucrats' mm-hmm. ability to control and manipulate their authority and power over it. And that that's just systemic, and it's exactly what you're talking about. If you make $2,001, you don't qualify, but if you make 2000 you qualify. Mm-hmm. Far be it from you to earn that extra dollar and find more success. We're going to punish you for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really sad. The other one I heard bounced around recently is the single parent incentive, basically. It was like, I don't remember when this was. Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, I think, is his policy. Yes. Right? Of he was If you have a two-parent household, then we're not going to give you money. But if you're a single mother, then yeah. we're going to give you money. So they're incentivizing the fathers right. to leave. Right. You know? And, like, think of all the repercussions of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's incredible, the, the backwards thinking that has been happening. So in your um, estimation... All of the turmoil that foments, and this is a cyclical thing. This is not the first time. In fact, I just had a patient in this morning who's from small town Kansas. Um, uh, I can't even remember the name of the town. Anyway, they remember traveling to Kansas City in 1967, 68, when the riots Rents. were terrible, you know? And they, they had never seen, I mean, they grew up on a farm. They had no idea what was going on. They turned around and drove back. And... This is nothing new. And it you go back and look through history and it's nothing new. What's an answer? What's one answer that you have? You know, you, as a, a black man who's earned, you know, earned a whole lot in life, found, you know, you've been blessed in so many ways. What do you look at? Where do you come from and say, if this thing, one thing could change, what a difference this world would be in? I feel like that's the million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the question no one gives an answer to. Because um, I don't, I mean, I think it's many, many components, yeah. but I'd just love to hear yours. You know, I think for me, the the biggest thing is we have to sit down and have dialogue and conversations and get to know, we have to get to know each other. Um, you know, folk, I've had somebody ask recently, um, you know, Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter? And I'm like, both. I'm a proponent that all lives do matter. Mm-hmm. But what I also see is when somebody says Black Lives Matter and the immediate response is, well, all lives matter or Blue Lives Matter too. Mm-hmm. What we're not doing is taking the time to listen to what's going on inside that person. They're frustrated. They're angry about something. To immediately diminish what somebody is feeling is saying, I don't hear you. I'm counteracting what you're saying. And it, again, it doesn't mean that people don't think that black lives do matter, but it's just, okay, great. Black lives matter. Tell me why. Why is that important to you? What does that mean to you? Maybe you've actually been a victim of police brutality. That's your why for black lives matter. Maybe you've had someone been affected by it. That's why you're black. That's why it matters to you. Um, and again, at the end of the day, I don't think any of us think that certain lives don't matter. But that's our immediate response is, well, if you just focus on one, then you're leaving out the other. Not necessarily true. I used this very elementary example the other day. I walk in here. It's raining outside. And Dr. Chad goes, I'm frustrated it's raining today. And I say, the sun comes out tomorrow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've not asked him why he's upset about the fact that it's raining today. Maybe he has an event plan that has hundreds of people coming Mm -hmm. and he's going to lose money due to the fact that it's raining. This event can't take place. But I never took the time to find that out. I just simply heard, I'm frustrated it's raining today. And I immediately responded, well, the sun comes out tomorrow. Well, that may be good for tomorrow, but that's bad for you today. And that has you frustrated. Again, I think if we stop and take time to listen to people and actually get to understand and know what's going on, why are you frustrated? Why is this important to you? What what would you like to see change instead of just immediately counteracting and having a... um, you know, a a combative dialogue about this is why your point of view is wrong or this is why your point of view should be different. I think that's where we start to see a breakdown. And then I think that's where, um, you know, peaceful protests become rioting, becomes looting, becomes more because people are become more and more frustrated or incited that you're not listening to me. Like you're not hearing what I'm saying. And so I think that would be, if I had to say there's only one thing, I think we've got to sit down and start having dialogue 
at the individual level to get to know people and get to understand what's going on. Why does this matter to you? What are your frustrations? What are you feeling inside? And listen, what do you need from me? Maybe there's nothing I can do about it, but what do you need from me? Maybe you just need me to sit down and listen. Maybe you need me to go be a voice in a room where you don't have a voice. Whatever that looks like, but I don't think right now, and again, we've probably seen this play out over the last political cycle or two, people just aren't listening to one Mm -hmm. another. It's either you have to have my same point of view on what I think and I believe or else we're, we're enemies, and that's not really the case. Yeah. I'm going to speak to that real quick. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, one of the, the cesspools of humanity today, Facebook, um, uh, which, by the way, don't forget to like Renegade yeah. Atlas on Facebook. <laughs> we leverage heavily, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, this is an example, and I will not use the person's name. From now on, I'm just going to assume the level of racism in your heart is pretty high if you continue to say all lives matter. Yeah, so the, the example that I saw along those lines is a graphic, and it was like a cartoon strip, you know, but it was like, all houses matter, you know, but like one house is on fire, and the fire the fire truck is there, and they're like spraying the other house that's not on fire. You know, it's like, yeah, all houses matter, but this house is on fire right now. Let's pay attention to this house. <laughs> yeah. So my, my comment on this is that racism is not necessarily the problem here on this particular issue, I think that you're getting to it, it's ignorance and the ability to listen to other people. And what happens is we get a friction point that's occurring where perhaps the person who, it doesn't matter their their color or anything, they just go to work, they come home, they take care of their family, and then all these things are going on around in the world that are big issues. And that perhaps they don't even have, let's just say it's, a, it's an Asian guy and he happens to work with a black guy, but at work, they just work. They never dialogue on mm-hmm. important things. Maybe it's, it's high-end work, and they're just focused on getting stuff done. And they never have a discussion. And then when they get home, they're in their own world doing their things, and, they're, and that's a different life for them, and they never meet in that common area. And that creates more friction than it does unity. And you get, you get people yelling at one person, you know, you're racist for saying black lives don't matter. And then you have somebody yelling, you know, only black lives matter. And then you get into this, or all lives matter, excuse me. And you get this swirling emotional component where no one is actually being heard. Mm. You nailed it. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's exactly where we are. It's, uh, it's, Here's my point of view. You agree with it. You don't. And you don't hear what I'm saying. I'm not hearing what you're yeah, saying. And yeah, so then yeah. let's just yeah. wait. And again, I, I don't know if it's okay to talk about Jesus here, but here we go. You know, I've gotten asked, again, my opinion about this. What do I think? Um, even in workplace settings. And I've I've had to tell people my identity, not, not that I obviously, I'm a black man. I can't change that. But my identity is not wrapped up in the, the color of my skin. Mm. It's wrapped up in who Christ says I am. Mm-hmm. And I see myself that way. And a lot of the people that I spend time with see me that way. Um, but not everybody does. And, and I realize that. And that's, that's okay. That's it's the world we live in. We're visual people. We have eyes. Mm. It's human instinct, I think, and survival to uh, categorize people. And, I mean, that's what we did in, in the early days to know if, an animal approaching us was dangerous or if it's okay for us to go get it and kill it until we'd have food to eat. So I think that's part of our natural instinct is to automatically group judge and categorize based on what we see. Um, But again, it goes back to my earlier point. We've got to start taking time to get to know people individually for who they are. Um, You know, in regards to kind of the, the business world, I've, I've, you know, said I'm, I'm not the picture or the epitome of the black experience in America. I'm not. Have I had interactions with the law enforcement? Yes. Have I been called the N-word? Yes. Have I had situations where racism was overt, right in my face, blatant? Yes. But my experience has been vastly different because I am educated, because I do live in a certain zip code, because mm-hmm. I have had certain blessings in my life and been afforded opportunities to you know, live in different states and, and visit different people and have culturally diverse friends. So again, my experience is not the experience for the black community. Is it one of the experiences? Yes. Do I have a point of view being a black man in America? Yes. But at the end of the day, 
that doesn't define who I am. But at the same time, if I'd have been born in a different zip code under different circumstances, could my life look drastically different? Absolutely. My life could also look drastically different because of decisions that I've made as an individual too. Um, not necessarily things people have done to me. And so I, hmm. you know, I was, I was thinking of different examples of, you know, interactions I've had with law enforcement. And, you know, I can think of a time where me and some high school buddies were horsing around and we pulled up to a stop sign and I sped out around them because they were in front of me and a, a cop pulls me over and it's, you know, are you in a hurry to go somewhere? And I'm like, no, that was my buddy at the stop sign. We were just horsing around. I drove around him. I, I go to the high school right here, you know, um, play sports, uh, you know, all, just all those things so that he knew he wasn't, I wasn't some kid just out, you know, causing trouble. And, you know, he checked me out and I've, I've always had a clean record. That was something that my mom was very clear about at a young age of like, mm. you go to jail, you do this, like, it's going to be bad. Like, don't do it. And then you're going to have to deal, <laughs> then you're gonna have to deal with me when you get home. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and I did not like dealing with her in regards to punishment. So, um, so I, I stayed out of trouble. I mean, I started working at 13 years old. Um, and again, you know, a lot of people talk about having the talk with their black children of, hey, if you interact with police, like, this is how you act. This is what you do. And so I've, I've always handled myself mm. in ways that, um, again, would allow me to walk away from those situations. I've literally pulled out wallet, had it sitting on the dash, pulled out registration, had it sitting on the dash, hands on the steering wheel. By the time they get to my window, windows already down. I mean, like, I don't want to have any reason to make a move to where somebody could say, oh, I thought they were reaching for something like, no, I just boom, boom. There you go. Here's yeah. what you need. Hands on the wheel. And I've always been able to walk away from those those experiences and interactions with the police. And again, that particular night, this this officer ended up seeing my friends like pull over to the side of the road behind a house or something. He's like, are those your friends over there? Hey, do you want to mess around with them? Like, get out of the car. I'll pretend like I'm going to pat you down or something. <laughs> and then real? we'll just wave at them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and as an 18-year-old kid or whatever, you know, I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. And I could tell the cop was, you know, I could tell he wasn't trying to be weird or anything. And so we did, and we waved at my friends and he just yeah. said, have a good night, you know? And so again, I've, I've had interactions with police that have been great. I've had some that haven't been, been as nice, but at the same time, like I said, I've, I've always done the things that I needed to do to make sure that yeah. I wasn't giving anybody a reason to, to treat me in a way that they should not. Just out of curiosity, was that cop white, black, or otherwise? Uh, it was a white cop. White, yeah. Yep. I mean, that's kind of an aside. But how? here's a more important question. How does it make you feel that you feel like you need to do those things, like put your ID on the dashboard, and I don't necessarily feel like I need to do that? Yeah, you know, I, again, I think for me, um, you know, I don't have any animosity that like, oh, Matt or Dr. Chad or anybody else, you know, they, they don't have to think about that. That's just that's life. Um, you know, that's, that's the lot we'd be handed. Should it be that way? Should I have to think about that? No. But like I said earlier, at the end of the day, it's the world we live in. People have eyes, they make judgments. That's going to, what I can control is me. What I can't control is somebody else. Like I said, I, I focused on my identity in Christ. I can't control what other people choose to think about me or how they choose to see me, but I can control me. And so it, like, like you said, yeah. Should we not have to think about that? Sure. But the fact of the matter is, is I was born black. That's one of the things I have to do. It's just part of life. Like, I don't, you know, I don't think that, oh, you know, somebody's out to get me or, you know, if the system was different, I wouldn't have to do this. It is what it is. Should it be that way? Absolutely no. And again, even with the Black Lives Matter, I don't think anybody is arguing that any human life doesn't matter. There's just, again, the Black Lives Movement right now is about, hey, we've got this issue and, and we want some attention. We want to talk about it. Yeah. So that's where the focus is. But again, we I think we're we're looking at bigger systemic issues instead of looking at what we can do on an individual level. And again, don't get me wrong. I understand. I've, I've watched documentaries like 13 um, where there you can obviously tell there are systematic things going on that oppress people. But again, what can we do to change that? Well, if we're not dealing drugs, if we're not doing things we shouldn't be doing, hmm. we're not going to get arrested for drug charges. And therefore, we're not going to end up with three strikes and end up with 20 years in prison over having marijuana or whatever the case may be. But it's like Man. control what I can control. I can't control if a cop chooses to pull me over, but I can't control if I'm driving the speed limit, if I'm obeying the traffic laws, if my tags are up to date, if I'm not driving around suspicious. I can control those things. And so if I do what I can control... I can't worry about what other people think about me, how they judge me. I, it's, I can't. Otherwise, I mean, yeah. 
I would drive myself crazy if I was always worried about what one culture gets versus mm. what I don't get, or why does this, why, you know, Matt doesn't have to think about that when he stops with a cop. I do. That's not fair. It's life. Nobody ever said it was going to be fair. I mean, we all have different things. And again, we're, we're talking about it right now in the context of getting pulled over, yeah. but I'm sure we could sit here and come up with a hundred different examples. Somebody growing up on a farm, there are probably things that just naturally come to them that they think about doing that I never think about because I didn't grow up on a farm. Is right. it fair, unfair? No, it's just like we're just different. And that's at the end of the day, it's okay that we're all different. We just have to learn how to love and accept each other yeah. as humans and individuals. And are there bad people out there? Sure. Are there bad cops out there? Sure. But I know a ton of great cops. I've had great experiences with police. I've had bad experiences with police, but I don't categorize them all or put all of one people into a bucket because of one experience with one mm -hmm. individual. I mean, that is an incredible perspective, you know, and I, I totally resonate with that. I, I, yeah, it's like, it's a very mature perspective. I think it's, it, it may not be popular, but it's me. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> well, but it, it gets back to this identity. So you're big on personal responsibility, it sounds like, but then also identity, like who God has made you to be. And that kind of leads me to this question. Like, how do you see yourself in this big discussion? And like, do you have particular... Um, maybe you've already kind of talked about it, but like, where are you passionate about, you know, um, having a voice? Like, what do you want people to know, whether it's the white community, the black community, people in general, believers, you know, whatever, like, what do you feel, where do you feel God's called you to have a voice in this whole thing? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, you know, I think part of it is around the fact that it's so easy and especially in the day and age we live in. I mean, you see the, the, Blessing and the curse in social media, as an example. Um, obviously, without technology and video and, and videos on cell phones and things like, there's there's police brutality things and, and just things in general that have been captured on video that we would never seen. I mean, you can talk about people getting pulled off airplanes, like totally. that's captured on video now on cell phone. Yep. You talk about yep. a yeah. police officer with their knee on. Count on it being <laughs> filmed out, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, a police officer with with their knee on somebody's neck, and there's we see that because of cell phones and technology and social media. Mm. Um, at the same time, it's it's very easy for the media to push uh, messages and information that most people don't take time to really dig in and do research for themselves. They just take, oh, I saw on the news, like this is what the, the narrative on the news was in the media, so that's I'm taking that as fact. Um, and unfortunately, we're just in a day and age where you just can't take everything that's spoon-fed to you without doing research and, and knowing yourself. Um, I was I was watching a, a video that had been posted on Facebook not too long ago, and the, the person referenced you know, I've read this and I've listened to this person, I've listened to this person, and, and their point of view was very different um, than what I had had kind of formulated on my own thus far. But even after hearing it, I didn't go, that person is right. Like, that's it. That's fact. I'm going to take what they've said is my opinion and I'm going to run with it. My immediate response was, they raised an interesting perspective. I'd like to learn more about that. Mm. Now I want to go research the people that they reference so I can either a, draw the same conclusion that they did based on reading it myself or form my own opinion about the information that I find. But again, I don't think people do that nowadays. And so we, we just get fed whatever's on TV or media and we just take it at face value without doing any research, without knowing the intent of the author, who their typical audience is. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it to where and then some people go, well, I don't want to be completely you know, out of that. I don't want to look at no news at all. I understand that, but you have to take everything that you read with a grain of salt. And even to take a step further, you have to filter with the Holy Spirit. So that's exactly what I was just going to say. If we, our foundation is on is scriptural, if it's if everything we do comes back to scripture, where does that give us our trajectory for life and the decisions and thoughts we make? And that's where you're going. Yeah, I mean it's. No different than you pick up the Bible to read it and you say, All right, Holy Spirit, like, what is this saying to me? Mm -hmm. God, what are you wanting me to get out of this particular passage, this book, this verse? We have to do the same thing with, with anything else that we get. Job situations, life situations, relationships, situ whatever it is. 
God, what is it that you are wanting me to get out of this? Hmm. Lord, what is it you are wanting me to get out of this situation? Am I being called to do something? Am I being called to be an encourager? Am I called to be a supporter? Am I, are you, am I being called to maybe express a truth that's not the popular truth and contrary to what we're seeing in the media? Hmm. That we, again, it goes, I guess, I think you summed it up well, personal responsibility. Like we have to go back and say, what is it, Laura, that you are looking for me to do in this situation? Because mm. again, I have a lot of friends that that have posted things on social media with Black Lives Matter. And again, I'm supportive because it's it's important to them and their friends to me. So, so their causes, it's important to me as well. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily have to have the exact same view and opinion that they do to be supportive of the fact that they're hurting or that they want change or maybe how they've been called to serve in this particular situation sure. looks different than how I've been called to serve. So maybe they're out actually down on the plaza protesting. That's not the place that that I've been called to be. I haven't heard God tell me, get up, leave your family for however many hours and go walk the plaza and protest. That's not what I've been called to do. But if I have friends that do that and I have friends that have, I'm supportive of them because again, that's important to them. Mm. Um, but again, going back to the personal responsibility thing, like I've got to figure out what is God telling me in this situation? Um, and again, I, I've, one of the biggest things that I think that I'm hearing from him is really around the fact that just don't be spoon fed the media narrative that's that's out there. Um, and then again, that has caused me to do a lot of research, to look at a lot of things that are um, people that are that are putting videos out and information out and articles that are contrary to um again, kind of the general narrative that's out there. And, you know, I've read some things about people who don't support the Black Lives Movement and why. And, um, you know, like one of the things I I read the other day was um, the fact that in this manifesto that was put out, uh, again, this, and it wasn't Black Lives, it was the Movement for Black Lives or something like that, MLMB, I believe. Um, But it said that nothing in their manifesto talked about forgiveness or reconciliation. And it was the author literally said, as a Christian, I can't get on board with that because it's contrary to the gospel. Like the gospel is about forgiveness and reconciliation. So there were nine other reasons, but it's like if for nothing else, like for that alone, here's an organization that is screaming Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. We're fighting for justice, but nowhere in in their manifesto of this is who we are and this is what we're trying to accomplish. Does it say anything about forgiveness and reconciliation? That stood out to me. Like, again, as a Christian, we're about preaching the gospel. The gospel includes forgiveness. It includes reconciliation. It includes turning the other cheek. I mean, it's like there's Hmm. so many things that are gospel-centered that you just don't necessarily see as part of this movement. And it doesn't mean that the people that are protesting or whatnot aren't Christians. I just think some of them may have are just, again, eating up the narrative that's been fed to them. One, maybe without filtering it through the Holy Spirit. But two, without going out and doing more research, um, because, again, it'd be very easy even for me just to say I'm black. It was a black person who was killed. That's it. Raise the guns. We're, you know, we're storming the castle. Okay, like, let me do a little bit more research and and understand why we're storming the castle before I just jump in the boat to go storm the castle because I'm the same skin color. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to... Probably, uh, I'm going to go down a path that um, is just the smallest, tiny, little semblance of uh, of appreciation where you're coming from that I can possibly get to. And um, as many of the listeners who have been with us for a while know, oh, by the way, don't forget to buy Shenandoah Joe coffee. <laughs> go to our website, therenegadeatlas.com. Go to our sponsors and use the code renegade when you're purchasing it no there's no discount it's how we make money to support this show so don't forget about getting your shenandoah joe coffee um twice in africa um uh, i have once i was pulled aside by the head police officer um, along a dirt road i was taking a taxi from one town to another town about two hours away he saw us coming they were with all the police officers it was a checkpoint on the way back, he's the only one there, pulls me out of the car, and he beats me and takes all the missions trip money, okay? So he got like $2,500 US dollars, which was probably equivalent to a whole year of pay for him. And I got a couple of broken ribs. Did I hold it against that police officer? 
Well, maybe on an individual, I didn't like getting beat <laughs> up. Um, but I'd never made that association with the other police officers in Ghana. And just because he was black attacking me because he knew I would, he, it was an opportunity. Did I think it was a racial thing? No, no. I think he profiled me for sure. But that doesn't fit the full narrative. It's just I've been, I've been twice now, in, in once in Uganda and once in Ghana, where those things have happened. And my, my heart afterwards, like that night, the first time it ever happened, I just sat there and I started crying for that guy. If he had asked me for the money, I probably would have given it to him. Well, he had a gun, but, you know, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I, I would have, you know, if I knew his life was in such a state and if he was just being arrogant and doing it, and that's probably why he did it. Um, but my heart set, I sat there crying and for about that guy and where, what in his life led him to the point. And when I saw that officer doing what he did mm-hmm. with his knee on the neck, I couldn't imagine what, how broken and hurting his heart is to do that to another human, you know? And then, of course, I mean, I'm not minimizing what's happening. I mean, his life is being taken from him one heartbeat at a time with no oxygen in his lungs. That dynamic, I mean, that just kills me when I think about that. And, and this goes to your point, our individual response that we have towards, towards people. Where's the compassion? You know, where do, we, where do we reach out and be real with each other and come from a place of repentance, confession, and find life? Because anybody who isn't coming from that place, they're just dying more on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, um, you, know, you talk about the compassion piece, and it's, you know, it's so vitally important that we, we get to a place where we are seeking and desiring to see each other as God sees us. Um, to see with his eyes and to see with his, with his heart. Because I, I can relate to you. Like you said, you when you see people that that do bad things, when your heart is inclined towards God, it, it makes you see them almost with more compassion. Because right. it's like, I know that person is hurting. They're operating out of fear. They're operating from, you know, deal, things they haven't dealt with that they could literally be back as far as childhood. Yeah. And you know that's where I mean it's it's just obvious like that person is hurt. They haven't addressed it. They don't know how to deal with it. It's still in their heart. And what's inside of us will come out. Just, you know, the old adage you squeeze a lemon hard enough, like lemon juice is going to come out of it. That's what happens when people get squeezed and they get put into tense situations. What's inside of them comes out. Mm. I, I I said that several times about the Central Park ordeal. It's like the lady and her apology said, oh, I never saw myself in a situation like this. And I, I really, really apologize. And I'm like, that's great. But you were in a situation and your immediate response was, I'm going to say that a black man is threatening me. Mm-hmm. Like that yeah, was, that yeah, was that already was, inside your heart. Like it, it was there. That was there. Maybe you didn't see yourself in a situation where you would actually do that. But that's what was inside of you, and you were in the wrong to begin with. You're in a dog park where you're supposed to have your dog leash. You're in the wrong. Somebody actually asked you to follow and obey the rules. It's a tense situation, and when we get squeezed, what comes out is, I'm going to call the cops and tell them that a black person has threatened me. Like, that was already inside of you. That just wasn't, oh, you know, I'm scared, and so this. No, that was somewhere deep inside your heart. You're right. And when things like that, situations like that arise, whatever is in our heart will come out. It's just all, it's like really good. So I wanted to ask you about the idea of forgiveness. So I guess just tell me what you think about this statement. The one doing the forgiving has the power. Yeah, a lot of folks find that hard to believe. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, they find it hard to believe because, and again, I've, I've heard it time and time again. Well, 
if I forgive them, then it says what they did was okay. Right. Nope. Nope. Um, then I forgive them. It means that they don't have any responsibility. For, nope. If I don't forgive them, then, I mean, fill in the blank. Sure. Whatever excuse people come up with. Um, all untrue because if, again, you take our relationship with Jesus, that would be like saying, Jesus forgave me. Oh, so that means he condones all of my sin. Mm-hmm. Nope. Um, he loves me despite of it. <laughs> Um, or, you know, that means that I, it's okay what I did wrong because Jesus still forgives me. Nope. What I did is that, again, we can take murder. If I go kill somebody, Jesus still loves me. Doesn't right. love me an ounce less. But there are natural consequences to our actions. So will I be in jail? Yeah. Will Jesus still love me? Yes. Am I still forgiven? Yes. So it doesn't make my actions okay. Mm-hmm. It just means that I'm loved despite of my actions. Right. And again, I think, sadly, we, we live in a world where people are more concerned about their feelings than being obedient to the Holy Spirit, to God and his word. Wow. You nailed it. Hmm. You and, nailed it. And I'm guilty of that at times, too. I'm not too. perfect. Yeah, I, I am, too. Totally. <laughs> but that's we're, we're so we're so concerned about our feelings. Um, and the, the thing that I think most people don't realize is that Feelings are fleeting. They change. They, they come and go. Um, and so because I feel a certain way right now, I decide to take actions based on how I feel and what I think is right. And I don't take the time to think bigger picture, grand scheme of things. Is this, again, I can't talk to, to non-believers because they're, they're not in relationship with Jesus. They're not thinking about it this way. But, but for us as Christians, it should be, Again, is this what God wants me to do? What does the Bible say about this? Um, I've been going through a Bible plan with some a group of guys this year that kind of goes through the whole Bible. And it's it's just really fascinating, like, the different stories that are in the Bible that, you know, some of them I've never read or didn't know the details of it. But it's just like, yeah. to your point earlier, like, what we're experiencing today is nothing new. I mean, literally, like, back in biblical times, there were – race relation issues there were you know community community issues this the romans didn't like this yeah. group this group didn't like that group and i mean i just listened to some of those stories and it's like wow like people were literally like murdering off their own family members to yeah. get what they wanted like talk about giving into the flesh i mean and so you think about that like i said today even as christians we need to be thinking what is god calling me to do? What What does the Bible say in this situation? Let me go look at Proverbs. What does Proverbs say? But there's so much wisdom Oh yeah, just mm. in the book of Proverbs alone. And it's like nine times out of 10, if you just stop, go look, find something in the Bible related to that, it, you are more than likely going to find an answer or solution and probably change your mind about your feelings before you actually act something out. And I mean, it's happened to me. It, it can happen to you listening. I mean, just literally take the time to pray, think, read the Bible, see what the word of God says about how to respond to situations. Because I mean, Jesus overcame the world and he's given us the answers. He's given us the recipe for life and life abundantly. We just don't want to go look at the recipe. We just want to start grabbing stuff out of the cupboard yeah. and, and making mm-hmm making a recipe and then we're confused when we don't get an apple pie, but we never put <laughs> apples yeah. in the, we never put apples in there. <laughs> follow the recipe, follow, yeah. follow the recipe. You'll get apple pie if that's your desired outcome. But if oh. it's not, if you want to make whatever you want, if you want to be the God of your own world, yeah. don't look at the recipe. Just start grabbing stuff out of the fridge and the cupboard and throw it all together and see what comes out. But we can't be upset when it doesn't come out like apple pie, like we desired because right. Whatever outcome we're looking for is in the Word of God. And if we just go look at what the Word of God says, this is how I get apple pie. Okay, so this is how God says I get apple pie. If I do those things, guess what's going to come out? Apple pie. But instead, like I said, we get so caught up in our feelings and our emotions, uh, which at the end of the day goes back to identity. Um, Totally. It's what we feel about ourselves. Most of the time it's because we truly haven't accepted and gotten at a heart level what God says about us and who God says that we are. Um, therefore, we begin operating out of judgments. And yeah. I'll add this in about judgments. Oftentimes when, when we hear that word, we think it's about other people. 
I think we we vastly underestimate how much we judge ourselves. Hmm. Um, and it's I, I could talk on that forever. But again, judgment is not just about other people. It's self judgment, too. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, some people say, oh, well, somebody's you can tell that person's not overly confident. That's that's not just a judgment yeah. thing. I mean, I'm talking about people who walk, talk, look like normal, healthy people are constantly judging themselves. And you never like you never know because you don't see it on the outside. But they they are torn up and beat up on the inside. Totally. And it's all based on identity and judgments about self just as much as it is about other people. Totally. And then judged people judge others. It's kind of the tendency, right? You know, and it's so, so it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, with the Bible verse, it talks about, you know, whatever measure you judge, you shall be judged. Yeah. Um, again, people often think that that's based on external judgment. Right. Like, right. however I judge Matt, if I judge Matt on appearance, then I'm going to be judged on appearance. If I judge Dr. Chad on, you know, his height, then I'm going to be judged on height. It's not just that. I mean, it's literally like, yeah ourselves, even at our own heart love. If I think, and here's the fascinating piece. If I think about myself, anything less than what the word of God says, mm-hmm. then I've judged myself. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's a false identity right from there. Exactly. Yep. And that, and then that's where I'm operating out of. Sadly, yep. for a lot of people, the majority of the time I'm operating from a false identity about yep. who I am, what I'm capable of, the things that I can accomplish. And again, I was Grew up going to private school, you know, was was exposed to the word of God early at a young age. Didn't really start walking it out and implementing it in my life until probably the last 10 years. But it's there's so much that's involved in that of, again, if if I get rooted in who God says I am, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm not as concerned about, one, what other people think about me, two, like— totally. Again, I'm not worried about the fact that I walk down the street and some people see a black man because— I don't care what they think about me. Like I'm more concerned about what God says about me than man. Because again, at the end of the day, my interactions with those people, unless I choose to allow them to get close to me and to have significance in my life, they have, they carry no significance. Right. And so why does it matter that the significant thing in my life is my relationship with God? And I would encourage anybody out there to, to pursue that because it's it's such a an amazing place to get. And again, I'm I'm not perfect. I'm not there. I'm I'm still on this journey. But I've I'm far enough along that like I said, it it takes a lot to to almost even try to get me off kilter because I'm so rooted in yeah. like, okay, even if somebody says something like, What does God say about me? Like it's just the natural instinct because what does God say about me? Because otherwise I start to let somebody else's right. words and things right. take root in my heart. And then that, be, that becomes the bigger thing that's yeah. there as that's opposed the po- to the word of God. Uh, yeah. That becomes a poison. Right. Yes. You know, it's a, yeah, it's a really strongly rooted place to be coming from. I mean, that's where you're totally stable. I, I think I love that. I mean, I think identity, we talk about it a lot on this show. It's really core to every, any issue really that we come up with. I think you can actually work it back one layer deeper. Tell me, and I want you to tell me what you think about this. But well, we're created in the image of God. And I've heard it said that we reflect the God we believe in. So what if a big fundamental problem is that our view of God is off? So we look at God and we think he's judgmental, retributive, right? He's like whatever we see as God, that's kind of how the identity we take on. And we start to live that out. Yeah, you are so right about that. Um like you said, we have these false identities of, of who God really is. Um, and it's, again, I've had conversations with people. It's like, but but the Old Testament says, and I'm like, I'm not arguing that it's written in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But you have to realize the Old Testament was also the Old Covenant. Mm-hmm. When you get into the New Testament and the New Covenant, right. we're, we operate differently now. And so the, the God that you saw in the Old Testament and again, even going back to Adam and Eve in the garden, God has always been about love. Yep. I mean, people say, oh, but as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God showed up to fellowship with him in the garden like he had done every other day. Right. He yep. had already knew that they had messed up, but he still came to fellowship with them and because of his love. And so even from the garden, you can see love. 
So even though there were times and and again, you could uh, this has been a fun part of doing this this Bible plan is uh, early on in those first several books, like you could there are just examples where it's like God says that's it, mankind is messed up again. Yeah. I'm going to destroy them all, and it's like, what if there were a hundred good people? Like, would yeah. you save the city for a hundred yeah. good people? Yeah. I love the way he goes to this auction moment. Yeah, and that's not the only time though. I mean, there's many no. times in the Old Testament when you really read the text all the way through to completion. Don't just stop at the sensationalized part. It's like God gets to the point where He relents, but but I love them too much to to carry this out. So I'm gonna you know, give him a stay of execution, essentially. And he does it over and over again. And that, and like the Old Testament is the story of us. We all live that out. We are wayward, you know, yes. and we're deserving of God's judgment and all this kind of stuff. And yet he relents and he forgives and he pursues us. Um, we interviewed a guy named Brad Jersak a few weeks ago that I would, just for our listeners, if you're interested in this topic, he goes way into depth in his books and a little bit on our episode about how Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. And so we see in Jesus who God really is, even though we have this image of him in the Old Testament as, you know, the mighty smiter or whatever. So I think yeah. what you're talking about is great. Um, that's just a good one to go back and reference. Uh, but yeah, it's this whole, our view of God is so foundational. And then it, it becomes our view of ourselves. And then it's how we view the world and operate in it. So I think that is a great point for us to kind of bring this in uh kind of corral this issue we've gone to i think what the three of us would say is the heart of the issue on all issues and that is our relationship with the lord before anything else mm-hmm. you know that our relationship with the lord can change our view of another human a view of ourself and certainly it changes our relationship with our creator Okay. Mercedes, any like last things you'd like to add or, you know, thoughts? Um, oh, you know, like I said, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm sad about what's going on in the, in the world today. Um, hopeful because at the end of the day, I know God still sits on the throne. Um, and again, this is, you know, nothing unexpected to him. Mm. So, mm-hmm. uh, Again, I think we'll we'll see change come out of this, which again, I think there are some social changes that that obviously need to be made. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm, I also see a, a great expansion of the kingdom um, coming through all of this too. And like I said, God, I know God doesn't does not condone the violent protests. I know He doesn't condone destroying businesses. I mean, none of that stuff is is godly by any means. Um, but at the end of the day, God can take anything and use it for good. Mm. And so I'm I'm excited and hopeful about the good mm. that will come from all of this. Um, I'm excited about the fact that, again, people may be more open to hearing the gospel now because just because of everything that is going on in the world and, and the fact that mm. there's so much uncertainty and, and just a lot of different things. So, um, so again, my heart is hopeful yeah. about what's to come, um, sad at the same time about that it maybe took some of the, the situations that occurred to to happen. Um, right. But at the end of the day, I, I really just want to encourage people, like I said, spend time, get in the word for yourself. Um, there's nothing wrong with listening to, to pastors and teachers, but even the stuff that you hear in sermons, like you've got to go back and dig into it um, and really like read and, and meditate on the word of God and get it for you and your heart. Because an example or a passage that stands out to me in one situation might stand out differently to you in a different situation or a different right. passage or verse for the same situation may stick out to you. Whereas I might think of something in Hebrews and to you, you know, something from Ephesians would, would come to mind. And so we can't just, sure. just again, going back to the earlier point, we can't just be spoon fed what's, what's put in front of us. I think we've got to get to a place where we're taking time to digest it for ourselves, to actually research, to learn, to meditate, most importantly, on God's word. Um, and at the end of the day, we've got really got to take time just to sit down and, and have conversations to get to know people for who they are. And I want to thank you guys for having me yeah. on the show today to, to share some of my heart and yeah. get to know, know you and oh, hear man, your heart It's a our better. pleasure. We really appreciate you coming on, sharing your perspective. Um, you know, for our listeners, if you'd like to 
continue this conversation, you know, or any follow-up, ask Mercedes questions, you can do that through our Facebook page, um, The Renegade Atlas. You can email us at guide at therenegadeatlas.com. Mercedes, is there anywhere you would like people to be able to reach you directly? Totally up to you if you do or don't. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I have a public profile, so people are welcome to reach out to me there um, if they like. I have an Instagram account that's not very active, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but one exists. And uh, again, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So, um, But yeah, people cool. are, are welcome to reach out if they'd like to. Yeah, perfect. Well, we'll post a couple links, you know, on our on our show notes page. And we just thank you all for tuning in today. Um, hope you got something great out of this message, and uh, we hope we hope that you take it with you as you go. So thanks for saving, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye.